Morning, everyone. Excuse me, I'm just going to rearrange the furniture. It's very difficult when there's no screen at the back. Everything's happening behind your head. Well, it doesn't matter who you are or what stage of life you may be at, there is one thing that is certain. All of us must face the future, whatever that might be for us. So unless you are planning to go to be with the Lord while I am speaking, and I hope that no one's got that plan, but unless you're planning to do that, then this message is for you. And James has something very important to say to us this morning about how we should face the future. Now in our home we have one doing year 12 and currently deciding on uh, courses and which order he should put courses and universities and everything. And we have another doing year 10 and currently deciding which subjects he should choose and what careers he might like to do. And his list is about this broad. So the future is quite a hot topic in our household. And whether you're just starting out and beginning to make your way in life and the future seems to hold endless exciting possibilities, or whether you've progressed through a large part of your life and have made it through adulthood, um, and now life seems increasingly cluttered with decisions about health and about um, living arrangements, wherever you are on that spectrum, facing the future is something that we all must do. And how we do it obviously has direct consequences in our own lives, but the consequences go much wider than that. Because as we shall see, there is an important ripple effect from how we live our lives and how we make our decisions about the future. So if you would turn with me today, we have a very short but very punchy reading from James. If you would like to turn to James chapter four, verses 13 to 17. James 4, 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now James begins the passage, now listen you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a detailed plan. Sounds like these people that he was talking to knew exactly what they proposed to do. They knew when they were going, 
They knew where they were going, they knew how long they were going to stay there, when they were going to come back, and they knew exactly what the purpose of their visit was. Sounds like a pretty well thought out plan, and it is, except for one thing. God is nowhere in that plan. He's been left completely out of the equation, and that specifically is what James is warning us against. Now, if business travel is not really where you're at in life, then it's okay to substitute another scenario because I think it's the intent here that is important, not the specifics of this passage today. So perhaps James might say something like this to you. Now listen, you who say... For the next couple of years, I am going to work long, hard hours. I am going to get that big deal. I'm going to get the next promotion. And I'm going to climb my way to the top of this organisation. Or maybe, now listen, you who say, I'm going to work hard and get into that university that I want to get into. I'm going to get that degree that I want to get because it's going to give me my best chance of landing my dream job. Or maybe you've passed that stage of life. Maybe James is saying to you, now listen, you who say, in five years' time, we'll get married. That way we'll have saved enough for a reasonable deposit on our dream home and if we work another five years after that, we can make a good impact in paying it off and then we can raise two perfect children. Or maybe you're even further along in the years. <laughs> and James is saying to you, now listen, you who say, at 65, I will have a pretty decent superannuation, enough to retire on. Then we can get ourselves a little caravan and a great big four-wheel drive to tow it and we can roam the country stopping at every golf course along the way. <laughs> now, James is not saying in this passage that there is anything wrong with making any of these plans per se. And we all know from experience, lack of planning on our part often leads to many problems or in the words of Winston Churchill he who fails to plan is planning to fail now in my house if no one plans what's for dinner <laughs> you eat what is left in the fridge and with seven kids that's often not that much so you may end up getting breakfast cereal which is my personal go-to food for dinner if a student doesn't plan a course of study ahead of exams, chances are they're not going to do so well in those exams. If you don't plan and work towards some kind of future occupation, chances are you might drift aimlessly through life, taking whatever casual work you can to pay the bills. And if you don't plan for retirement, chances are you will run out of money and find yourself having to manage with a much lower standard of living than you ever anticipated having to live with. So planning of itself is not a bad thing. 
And we have many examples of biblical planners. The Apostle Paul made plans for his missionary journeys. He planned where he was going to go. He planned often how long he was going to be there for. He planned who was going to go with him and when he was going to come back. Noah followed a plan for building the ark. Nehemiah had plans for building the wall of Jerusalem. David made detailed plans for building a temple for God. And God was at the heart of the plans of each of these men. Paul did his planning, but he was always listening for where God would lead him. Noah's plans came directly from God, and he followed them meticulously, likely in the face of great opposition and ridicule. Nehemiah was a man of prayer who prayed his way through his plans bit by bit, and David, although he did not live to see his plans fulfilled, was able to hand over the completed plan for the temple together with a list of materials that he had sourced in preparation to his son Solomon, whom God had chosen to carry out the plans to build the temple. God also is a planner. We're told so in Isaiah 37:26. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it from ancient times I planned it, and now I've brought it to pass. Jesus likewise planned his journey to Jerusalem, and he used the concept of planning in much of his teaching through his parables. He talks about the builder who must first count the cost before he lays the foundation for a tower. He talks about the king preparing for a battle who must first weigh up the size and strength of his own army compared to the opposition before he commits to the battle. Or there's the parable of the shrewd manager who makes shrewd plans for his own future when he is accused of wasting the boss's possessions and loses his job. Planning is not an altogether bad thing. And James is not proposing that we abandon planning because if he did, that would be out of step with the rest of what we're taught in scripture. But to plan without God is foolishness. Why? James tells us because you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Or you could rephrase that to say, because you're not God. None of us know what will happen tomorrow. In fact, we don't even know for sure what will happen today. We may well have lunch plans, but none of us know for sure that we're going to make it to lunch today. And that point was made abundantly obvious to us all with the recent passing of Ron McQuaid. One Sunday he was sitting here with us, the next he was standing before the Lord. You are a mist, says James, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And I've got a profound thought to share with you about mist. So if you're taking notes, get ready. Mist is misty. 
And it's very hard to see out of because it's misty. And when you're in the middle of it, say in the prime of your life, it's very difficult to see any end to it. And you can get completely caught up in the mist of your life, in the here and now. And when the mist starts to lift, say when we age and our bodies start to break down and wear out, often it's only then that we start to get some clarity on what's really important in life. It may take decades or only minutes, but eventually the mist will lift on each one of our lives. And because we're not God, we don't know when that will be. And it matters not. It matters not that we know when it'll be, but it matters very much that we're ready. Instead, says James, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. Now, this sentence has spawned the much maligned statement, God willing. I'm sure you've heard other people use it. God willing, we'll get nice weather for our sports day tomorrow. God willing, my train will be on time. God willing, I'll be able to go on holidays with you. God willing, my football team will win the grand final. It seems to be used now about as frequently by non-Christians as it is by Christians, and this has sadly relegated it to a meaningless phrase, something akin to a lucky charm. And that only serves to further confuse all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, on issues of God's will. Used with sincerity, however, as James intended, this is a powerful phrase that demonstrates both that God is in control and that we submit ourselves to his will. It doesn't mean that we abandon any planning on our part, but that God takes centre stage in our plans. And this verse, of course, raises that age-old question that plagues so many Christians how can I know what is God's will for my life? And we could do a whole teaching series on that. And there is a whole plethora of information available on this topic and you can glean some truly sound principles from all of that on how to discern what is really the voice of God and what is just your own wishful thinking. But today I'm just going to share four things that have been helpful for me as I have sought to work this out in my own life. First of all, does it conform with the fundamental truths of scripture and the nature of God himself? For example, if you believe that God is calling you to desert a ministry, desert a friendship, desert a marriage, or even a church because of relationship tensions without you having first done everything in your power to make peace, then you are mistaken because we worship a God of order and of peace who desires that his people live in unity. Disorder, discord and disharmony are not on his agenda and they are nowhere in scripture. 
Or perhaps what you're planning to do holds out the promise for you of exemption from suffering or failure or perhaps even exemption from much effort on your part. God never promised that in his word. In fact, quite the opposite. So if that's what you're chasing, you can be sure too that that is not the will of God. Is there a sense of authority? There is a certain firmness and yet warmth when God guides. There's something that resonates within Christians, something that is intangible and difficult to explain. But when it is God, often you know. And even if what you believe he wants you to do seems difficult or even impossible, something within you recognises him and longs to follow. Is there any confirmation? For example, if you are convinced that it is God's will for your life that you be a Bible teacher, but no one has ever affirmed that gift in your life, then you might be wise to sit tight, keep studying your Bible and look for opportunities to exercise that gift in small ways first. (coughs) Finally, does it ring true with your own heart? Our God is no bully and he will not bully anyone into doing his will. He created you, he knows your strengths, he knows your weaknesses and he knows what you are passionate about. And more often than not, you will find yourself with a growing passion for whatever God has in store for you and that certainly has been the story in my life. Now, as useful as all of these helps and the many others that are out there can be, and don't get me wrong, they are useful, but they can leave particularly the younger Christian, those newer in the faith, paralysed with uncertainty. If you don't know your scriptures well and you're new in your relationship with God, it's not easy to know if something conforms with the fundamental truths of scripture and the nature of God. That sense of authority, that warmth and yet firmness is difficult to put your finger on. Once you've experienced it, you'll know for sure. But until you have, it's very difficult to be certain. A sense of confirmation can seem concrete if it comes from mature Christians. But we all know that when we really want something, we can see confirmation anywhere and in anything. Does it ring true with your own heart? Well, if you're a passionate person, that too can be difficult to ascertain. You can, and many people do, spend a long time agonising needlessly over the will of God in their lives. It can completely paralyse them, robbing them of legitimate opportunities to serve and hone their skills. In my experience, if you're having trouble hearing God, it might be simply that you're just not close enough to hear. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. In John 10, 14, Jesus goes on to give us a model for what knowing him should look like. He says it should be, just as the Father knows me 
and I know the Father. And that is a mind-blowing statement when you think about it. Because Jesus knows the very nature, mind and will of his Father. Such is their intimacy. And yet this is what Jesus is saying it should be like for us, between us and him. It follows then that we will know God's will for us when we strive to know Jesus intimately, just as he knows the Father. Jesus continues, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now I'm sure all of you know those words of Jesus quite well, but this morning I want to show you what they look like. Because once you've seen it, it will change your perception of what it is to uh, know and follow the master. So I'm going to play a clip in a moment. And as I do, I'd like you to watch the sheep. Watch for their reaction. One more time. is to stay close to listen for his voice because pretty soon as you do that your will becomes as one with the master's will your will is his will and when that happens there's no further need to struggle or agonize over what the will of God for your life may be because if you're walking closely enough with him you will be walking in it So don't be paralysed waiting for God's will for your life to be laid out like a book in front of you. Instead, do faithfully what you know without a doubt you are called to do. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Make your plans around that. Invest your energies there. Read all you can to increase your depth of understanding of our God. Or if you're not into reading, look at things online. Get your nose into your Bible. Get really stuck into it. Study God's word. Ask questions. Develop a robust and disciplined prayer life. Find a mentor. Get involved in the church. Make time for God. Get to know him and take steps to put him first. And when you do, you will never be left wondering what is God's plan for your life because you will already be part of it. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. James continues, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting, he says, is evil. Now the fundamental problem for these Christians was not so much that they were making plans, not so much that they were even making money. Their fundamental problem was that they had left God out entirely. They were like those sheep we saw when the first three people were trying to call them. They were just doing their own thing. Not only had they left God out, they were actually boasting about their own plans. And this, says James, is not just a problem, it is evil. And there are a number of reasons why such boasting is evil. Firstly, for the effect that it has on others within your church family. We are called to be the body of Christ. We're told that we are one body with many parts under Jesus who is the head. Now, if one part is not operating under the head, then the result is a dysfunctional body. And you might expect such a church to have dysfunction in some of its ministry teams, to have trouble filling leadership positions, to have haphazard attendance and for people to be hurt in the fallout from this. For non-Christians looking on, they have a certain expectation of what Christians are like. They don't know exactly, but they expect us not to be the same as them. When our plans, our hopes and dreams for the future and our lives look indistinguishable from theirs, apart from the fact maybe that we go to church on a Sunday and maybe we don't drink and smoke, that paints a very confusing picture for them. We are supposed to be different. Our plans should paint a different picture. They should reflect the radical way in which Jesus has called us to live. And if they don't, not only is it hurtful for the church family and confusing for non-Christians, we actually damage the reputation of God and we undermine the work of his kingdom. Think for a minute about someone you love deeply. Husband, wife, son, daughter, friend. Now imagine how you would feel if someone spread rumours about that person undermining their reputation. In effect, this is what we do when we fail to put God first in our lives. The message we give out to the world is, I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven and that's what matters for me. But for the here and now, 
I'm going to be in charge and do it my way. Like it or not, God has entrusted each one of us with his reputation. And James has been very clear throughout his entire epistle that how we live, what we say and what we do matters very much to God. So having told his readers what is right, James closes this section by highlighting the fact that sin is found not only in our lives by us deliberately doing the things we know are wrong, we call those the sins of commission, but also by us not doing the things we know are right and we call those the sins of omission. Now I want to finish this morning with a story that I haven't forgotten since the day I first heard it approximately nine years ago now. It is the story of a young girl called Brooke Bronkowski. Brooke was a 12-year-old girl with her life before her. And her story is recorded for us in a book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. It is one of a handful of books that were life-changing for me. I've got a couple of copies if anyone would like to read one. Brooke is described in this book as a beautiful girl who was in love with Jesus. Now at 12 years old, Brooke wrote a brief essay. And that essay was titled, Since I Have My Life Before Me. And I'd like to read it to you now. And it'll be up on the screen, you can follow if you like. Since I have my life before me, I will live my life to the fullest. I'll be happy, I'll brighten up. I will be more joyful than I have ever been. I will be kind to others. I will loosen up. I will tell others about Christ. I will go on adventures and change the world. I will be bold and not change who I really am. I will have no troubles, but instead help others with their troubles. You see, I'll be one of those people who live to be history makers at a young age. Oh, I'll have moments, good and bad, but I will wipe away the bad and remember only the good. In fact, that's all I remember, just good moments, nothing in between, just living my life to the fullest. I'll be one of those people who go somewhere with a mission, an awesome plan, a world-changing plan, and nothing will hold me back. I'll set an example for others. I will pray for direction. I have my life before me. I will give others the joy I have and God will give me more joy. I will do everything God tells me to do. I will follow the footsteps of God and I will do my best. Now, Brooke's plans were not just some vague longing. Even at 12 years of age, those plans were being worked out in her life. At 12 years of age, she started a Bible study at her school. Pretty brave thing for a 12-year-old girl to do. She earned money babysitting, and she used that money to buy Bibles so that she could give them to her unsaved friends. Youth pastors in the local area who heard about Brooke began bringing her boxes of Bibles to give away and she would stash these in her parents' garage for when she needed them. 
Two years later, aged just 14, Brooke was killed in a car accident. Her life ended, but her impact did not. Nearly 1,500 people packed Brooke's memorial service, and her friends from her public high school spoke openly of her love for God, and everyone spoke of her example and of her joy. At the end of her memorial service, more than 200 students came forward, knelt down at the front of the church, and prayed for their own salvation. The ushers that were present gave each of them a Bible. They were Bibles from Brooke's parents' garage. You see, God was front and centre of that young lady's plans and she honoured him with her life and I believe in her death, the Holy Spirit moved to honour her plans in a powerful way. She said, I will give others the joy I have and God will give me more joy. I will do everything God tells me to do. I will follow in the footsteps of God. I will do my best. And I think that is a simple and yet brilliant life plan. She was 12 years old. She had no idea what life would hold for her. She was still working her way through all the details. But she was determined that God was going to be front and centre of her plans and that as a result, her life would be brilliant and extraordinary. And Brooke will not know the full impact of her godly life plan until Christ comes again. And we have a new heaven and a new earth, and she is united with all the other believers. Only then will she know how far her reach has extended. Only God knows what will be in the lives of those 200 students that came forward at Brooks Memorial Service and what will happen in the lives that they have been able to reach by their impact. Brooks' pastor was so inspired by her life and by what he saw transpire on that day that he chose to include her story in the first book he ever wrote. And that book, as I've said, was called Crazy Love and her story is in it because she modelled a crazy kind of love of someone who is in love with Jesus. By 2012, that book had sold 2.2 million copies, with its revenue being channeled back into Christian ministries and projects. At that time, it had not left the New York bestseller list for 83 weeks. It was revised, updated and republished in 2013 and continues to sell strongly to this day. The book is one of a handful that inspired me to change the way I was living. I had a friend at the time who was new in the faith and so I bought another copy and gave it to him. That friend was Wes McKinnon and the book was inspirational to him as well. So you see, even in her death, Brooke's legacy lives on. Her story is in the homes and has touched the hearts of millions all over the world, something that her 12-year-old self could never have foreseen. Her life was short and she was but a small drop in the pool of humanity, but her impact has been large. And the world is still feeling the ripples from that one small drop. Such is the impact of one life crazy in love with God and a life plan that puts him front and centre.
I'd like for us to pause for a moment now as we close and I want each one to think about your own future and where God is in your plan. Has he been relegated to just a mere spectator or perhaps a passenger that you call upon to provide assistance or direction whenever you're feeling lost? Or like Brooke, is he front and centre in your life and your life plan? Our musicians are going to play quietly for us now while we spend a few moments, eyes closed, in quiet reflection. I'd like you to think back to the scenarios at the beginning of the message. Does one of those scenarios fit your stage of life and your future plans? Are you the business person making business plans? How is God evident in your planning? Maybe you're currently employed and working hard to seal the next deal or earn the next promotion. What does it look like in that scenario to be crazy in love with God? Perhaps you're the student who is making decisions about your future. Have you considered God in those plans? Maybe you are at that stage of life where you found someone with whom you want to spend the rest of your life. And perhaps you're thinking about marriage, children, and you're making plans for your future together. What does it look like to have God as your highest priority in that scenario? Perhaps you're retired or planning to retire. What will your retirement years look like? Will God get pushed to the back seat while you take the lead? Or are you willing to ask if there's something else he might have you do now you're free of the demands of work and children? Where is God in your retirement plans? No matter where you are in life, whether at one of these stages or some other stage, all of us have that one thing in common. The future is still ahead of us. And it is never too late to make sure God is front and centre of your plans. If God has somehow become that passenger in your life, or worse still, if he's in the back seat or is standing at a distance watching, take time now to invite him back into the driver's seat. Musicians are going to lead us now in the song that we sung earlier. It'll be new to many of you. It is a personal favourite of mine and I think it presents us with a wonderful anthem by which we make plans and look to the future. The song is called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. If you'd like to stand. of grace is Jesus my Redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom 
my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing for in my need his power is displayed to this i hold my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead oh the night has been won and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price is been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this I hold my sin has been defeated Jesus now and ever is my plea oh the change are released I can sing I am free yet not I but through Christ in me with every breath I long to follow Jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day i know he will renew me until i stand with joy before the throne to this i hope my hope is only jesus all the glory evermore to him when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through 
in me When the race is complete Still my lips shall repeat Yet not I, but through Christ in me Yet not I, but through Christ in me When your race is complete, will you look back and say, I did it my way? the story of your life proclaim yet not I but through Christ in me Proverbs 3 5 to 6 says trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight Amen